1: Our
2: guest right now is Luigi Zingales. He is Chicago Booth Professor of Economics on changes having to do with the tax overhaul plan, but Luigi, always a pleasure, and I just gotta say, I'm gonna throw you one that maybe you didn't expect, but because you're uh, visiting the uh, the Northeast from Chicago, uh, I'm wondering if during your travels, you see things that then change the way you apply your professional and academic skills to specific problems of economics, because you're the author of two widely known books. One is called Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists, right? And the other is A Capitalism for the People, Recapturing the Lost Genius of American Prosperity. And I'm wondering when you travel around the country or indeed around the world, what do you pick up that may apply to both of those themes?
1: Uh, generally, I learn more when I travel around the world than uh, around the U.S., but uh, yeah, I do learn a lot. So I, I remember many years ago, I was in India, and uh, I was uh, taken by some friends to a government-owned store. And um, uh, they say, you should go there because you're not cheated in the government-owned store. And so that made me think, as a Chicago guy, I said, why, why sort of... Uh, uh, the market delivers this uh, mistrust, while the government-owned store uh, leads to a higher level of trust. And uh, and actually, it was very influential to my thinking because I said uh, the difference is that uh, if you have uh, government stores, tend to have very low incentives, very low incentives to do uh, the right thing, uh, take care of their customers, but also very low incentive to do the wrong thing, which is to cheat their customers. And uh, so, in in a system that is completely unregulated, well, the law is ineffective, uh, you don't know where the incentives of the market incentives will go. And, and in, in India, where enforcement against the uh, corporate fraud to customers, et cetera, is not so strict. You end up having that uh, that the market delivers more incentive to cheat than actually to behave properly. So I think that that was very uh, influential in uh, uh, my thinking about capitalism in general and rules.
2: All right. So is that something that you can apply to the tax overhaul package as you know it to be? Uh,
1: But uh, the, the tax package is... A, a huge mess, so it's very difficult to uh, assess it completely. Um, let's uh, start with the easy part, which is the corporate tax uh, uh, cut. I think that uh, maybe it's been a bit more aggressive than what I would have done, but I think that uh, was something that was needed in the United States. In a sense, uh, Canada is not considered a low-tax country, but uh, uh, if you invest in Canada, if you start a business in Canada today, uh, you end up paying 27% of corporate tax rate and if you were to set business uh, next door in the united states on average you are getting a 39 percent at least the statutory tax rate then there are all the loopholes but if we want really to motivate a business to start i think lowering the corporate tax rate was a necessary thing to do now was it done the proper way i don't think so i think first of all uh, if you are an influential country like the united states moving so aggressively is going to shift the equilibrium even lower. So uh, the U.S. should have cut, but should not have been competing with Ireland because Ireland is a relatively small country that tries to free ride on the rest. And uh, the United States should set the tone. And if you set the tone so low, uh, everybody will follow. So that, that, that's problem number one. Problem number two, uh, you need to pay for it. And uh, one way you pay for it is by increasing the base and some effort has been done in that direction, and I think was very good. Uh, I think more should have been done uh, and and not enough. And second, uh, there were there were a way to compensate. So uh, one easy way to do it would have been to increase the personal tax uh, rate on corporate income. Uh, and in that way, you would have favor starting corporation, but will not have favor a, a tax relief on the... Uh, richer part of the population, so there were better ways to do it.
0: Wait, wait. So you're saying we should have increased taxes on the richer
1: folks here in at the, the, the US? Personal, is that what you personal, the, the personal, personal income yeah. tax. Yeah, because in a sense, they are getting a huge reduction today, and while this reduction is very useful to start new businesses, it's not obvious that uh, is needed uh, at, at the top for for anything.
0: I always wonder too, Luigi. How much you know? Tax policy really is a motivator for actions. I mean, most a lot of people would argue, right, with the mortgage interest deduction that that's why people go out and buy homes. Go to Canada; they don't have it, and people still buy homes. And I think they have a, a even a higher rate of home ownership. How much, though? How effective really is tax policy when it comes to actions?
1: Is it the only motivator? Absolutely not. Uh, in, in economics, we say on the margin does it matter. Uh, I am shocked to uh, find that uh, anybody would say no. I think that uh, it does. The question is to what extent it does, and uh, and of course when you change a lot of things contemporaneously, uh, then it's hard to identify. But when we look at uh, the data and we look at uh, specific uh, changes, we generally find a, a pretty big uh, effect. Uh, if you want people to consume more, uh, you tax them less on that particular good. And if you want to reduce uh, uh, the consumption of a good, uh, an easy way to do it is to tax it. Even cigarettes that are very addictive, uh, when you increase taxes, consumption went
0: down. Right. One thing I wanted, because I wanted to bring up in in regards to this, one of our smart listeners here at Bloomberg Radio uh, wrote in yesterday and said, and talked about that, you know, a real motivator for companies to spend money is they're going to look... At the ROI, the return on investment, if building a facility, a factory, or investing, or doing a certain kind of R&D, or buying a company, or whatever, is going to impact the bottom lines, it's going to increase revenues after tax, right, that's what's going to make them do something.
1: Oh, absolutely. But even more importantly, I think that uh, we are living in a global world. And in particular, think about... uh, Well, not
0: according to a lot of politicians, (laughs) because we've seen a a big pushback against that globalization. I I understand, but but,
1: uh, uh, today... If you are a Canadian citizen or a U.S. citizen and you are thinking about uh, starting a business in Canada or starting a business in Detroit, uh, I think that why wouldn't you look at the tax rate? I think that's an important consideration. And, uh, of course, if you are thinking about starting a business in Zimbabwe or the United States, the, the, the corporate tax is probably uh, the, the least of your concerns. But when you are when comparing countries like uh, uh, the, the U.S. and Canada or the U.S. And, and the UK, the US and Ireland, that, that's a serious issue.
2: All right. I'm just going to offer two two thoughts, and you can pick whichever one you, you want to speak it's to like at the moment. It's a game show, Pim Fox. Yeah, right? Well, I just think this idea of you know choosing between Canada and the United States is great in theory, mm-hmm. but many people don't necessarily have that choice. If you happen to live, let's say, in North Carolina, mm-hmm. and that's where your family is, and you want to start a business, you're not going to necessarily check the tax rates in Canada or in uh, the in Ireland, unless you are already in business. I mean, that's, that's a different kind of choice. Is that mm-hmm. something you would agree with?
1: Oh, absolutely. And it says, what you're saying is the elasticity in economics, the elasticity is not infinite. And it says if uh, the, we didn't have any friction, then uh, all the businesses will move for a difference of uh, 1% tax rate. And we know that's not true. Uh, now, we cannot go to the other extreme to say that even if they have 15 percentage point of difference, they don't move. And this is uh, Ireland is a counterexample. Ireland made a success by having an extremely low tax rate. And when you in the financial well, crisis. Well, success
2: measured by what? I mean, for example...
1: By economic growth uh, and per capita income. Remember, people were emigrating from Ireland to come to this country. Now they do the other way around. Indeed, but as you said
2: earlier, the economy and the very size of the country is such that compared to, let's say, the United States, if you have one company leave the United States the effect might be minimal, whereas if you have one company go to Ireland, that may change the whole landscape of a particular
1: industry group. I completely agree, but uh, there is no doubt that Ireland has been a success story. Correct. And and this success story has been based on attracting foreign investments uh, because they have low tax rates and, Of course, they speak English, they have good world law. Close to the European Union. All this stuff. So if you do that in isolation, again, if you are Tunisia and you lower the tax rate, it's not that uh, people will fly the next day. Uh, However, having a lower tax rate is a comparative advantage. And uh, uh, especially uh, for multinationals, I agree with you that if you start your own little business, uh, then you start generally next to home because that's where you have your network, that you know the market and so on and so forth. But if you are a multinational, or once right. your business starts to be successful, then you relocate, and this is uh, right. Y- and, your- and we're
0: and we're seeing Luigi a lo- actually a lot more major companies even doing more in their backyards, doing producing and manufacturing closer to where they're selling. We're seeing that kind of trend happening. <laughs> All right, Luigi Zingales, we hope you're not out of a job soon because we want to continue talking with you, finance professor at University of Chicago, Busschool.
2: We've got Michael Purvis of Whedon & Company. He's the chief global strategist. He's been up all night. Michael, I know you've been looking ahead to 2018. You're not just planning the New Year's party. You've been taking a look at a variety of asset classes. I'm wondering if we could just get a little bit of a window into your thinking before you publish the report. I don't want you to give away
3: anything. Right. Well, I, I think as, we look, as, as I'm looking towards the year ahead, I'm sort of... You know, try to figure. You know, you know what is you know substantially going to be different next year um, than than in the last year, or for that matter, uh, any of the years going back four or five years. I really kind of look at it as sort of more of the same. Um, we have a what? What do we? I, ha- I call it uh, PIM, my sort of two 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 condition: two percent real, two uh, percent uh, inflation, two percent on the ten year treasury yield. Those three numbers are big round numbers, and they're maybe now two and a half, two and a half, two and a half. Uh, uh, arguably, but they're sort of coagulating with each other, and against that. Backdrop, you have a recipe for high PEs to be continue to be supported, and you don't need you know rock star earnings growth to get rock star rallies, right? You can get um, you know since 2010. pe expansion has has been about 8% per year on average and earnings growth has been about 6% per year on average so that pe expansion has been a core part of that that, that this this bull run and i am expecting that to continue um but my big questions are: Well, what's going to disrupt that framework, right? And I think that gets back to this: what we were talking about with volatility, which is inflation. Um, if inflation is to rise, it may be because growth is accelerating in the U.S. and other parts of the world, and maybe because of uh, commodity prices continue, you know, to to rally higher. Um, uh, you know, there, there's a whole there's a whole discussion there. But if we if we start seeing inflation, which has been so low, you're going to start seeing a few things happen. You're going to start seeing real earnings yields compressed to arguably maybe a dangerous zone. Real earnings yield because inflation has actually been declining through much of this equity rally, which is a very unusual, right? As you go into an economic cycle, you expect inflation, if anything, to 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 stiffen up, but it actually has been declining. Um, and that's really supported um, high real earnings yields, right? But so if, if inflation is to surge next year, another, I don't know, 50, maybe 75, maybe even 100 basis points. I'm not saying it's going to, but if it were to, that's going to really wreak havoc on real earnings yields. Um, a second thing that's going to do is it's probably going to lift the treasury yields um, much higher. And as that happens, the the spread between the um, uh, the dividend yield on the S&P 500 and the treasury yield is going to widen to the bit where you're not going to have that. That's my way of sort of quantifying where the Fed put is, and that Fed put's going to fall much further out of the money. So that's going to make, take a much more robust volatility Uh, drive much more volatility surface. Um, And then finally, you know, it's going to really, inflation is going to drive down earnings visibility. Um, The the year-over-year earnings growth we've had um, during this rally has been, if you actually look at the volatility of that earnings growth, it's been about the lowest it's been since the S&P started in the early 1950s. Um, And and I think what's going to as inflation goes higher, you're going to get into a lot more interesting questions about where margins going to actually be. And you don't need a lot of margin compression to offset any top-line growth, mm. right? Basically, if you were to get 100 basis points um, uh, uh, pickup in top-line growth because of higher nominal GDP, you only need 10 basis points of margin compression to really offset that from a, where's the S&P earnings in aggregate going to go.
0: So that says to me that there could be, you know, in terms of the equity moves, we could start to see a different direction next year.
3: Oh yeah, I think I think ultimately, what you know, it will be a much more interesting discussion if we get a higher inflation story there, because for all those reasons mentioned, you're going to see a richer volatility surface. um, Different sectors are going to do different things, um, and ultimately, you're going to see PE compression in that context. However. If inflation still stays low and rates still stay low, right, and all those conditions that have defined the backdrop over the last few years are are to continue, then I think you're going to see more of the same. You're going to see, you know, a nice year of earnings growth, not a great year, um, you know, backing up this one-time boost from tax reform, and then you're you're going to see, you know, probably, um, you know, tech continue to outperform. You're going to see industrials with global exposure continuing to outperform. And you're going to see banks continuing to outperform. What
0: if we, you know, I mentioned Washington. We just had Donald Trump uh, tweeting about the U.S. post office kind of giving things away in terms of not charging maybe Amazon enough to use its services. Um, Political impact and whether that comes in the way of maybe infrastructure spending that we finally get or just the, you know, the president kind of keeping everybody on edge by shooting something out in the morning. Um, How might that impact things in 2018? We got about 50 seconds.
3: Okay. Well, um, look, uh, basically until tax reform, uh, you know, finally came together uh, in the last few weeks, you had basically another form of gridlock this year, and the market did just fine with that, right? Now, infrastructure, I think, is going to be a much harder political calculus to solve for than tax, just mm-hmm. simply because, but and, and almost more so because taxes passed, right? Because of, you know, it's gonna it's going to drive up deficits even more, at least in the short run. So, um, it's it, that's a harder story. If we do get an infrastructure bill, I, I would suggest that uh, uh, that's where the inflation discussion gets very relevant.
0: All right, so we'll keep that in mind. Michael Purvis, Chief Global Strategist and Head of Derivatives, Strategy for Weaning Company.
2: Well, if you're getting ready to travel, perhaps for the New Year celebration, none better than Julian Keel, senior analyst at the Points Guy, to help us understand what's going on in the world of travel. Julian, thank you very much for being with us, and happy New Year to you.
4: Happy New Year to you too. Good morning.
2: Good morning. And um, just so uh, I guess I should be, uh, you should be glad that you were not on that ANA flight from LAX to. I guess it was Tokyo to Narita. Uh, Can you just recap, just because it's such an amazing story. How is it possible that someone who had a boarding pass for another flight managed to actually get through that screening machine? I mean, sometimes I have trouble getting through the screening machine, even with the right ticket. (laughs) And the person actually found a seat, and it was four and a half hours, I think, before they found out what was going on. Can you give us any detail?
4: Yeah, this is, this was definitely a breakdown in security. Uh, basically, what happened was, and the reason we know all this happened is because Chrissy Teigen the, uh, was tweeting it on the, you know, she was on the plane in business class and tweeting it as it went. Help, just just help model people. S- oh, thank you. Just model, oh, is she and, and,
0: model Chrissy Teigen married to John Legend. That's correct. And she's really fun on Twitter, I've got to say. She is,
4: and she loves travel. She actually wants to review, uh, uh, airline food, uh, she said, for a living, was, I think in addition to her current uh, occupation. Uh, but what actually happened was uh two brothers got onto this flight using the same boarding pass, using a copy of one boarding pass. The two brothers had very similar names. So even though the machine certainly would have beeped as uh, this pass was scanned twice, uh, the agent has to act on that information. The agent has to look at the situation and decide, is this somebody who's trying to do something wrong? Or did somebody simply get off the plane and then try and get back on with the same pass? That didn't happen, and other security checks didn't happen as far as headcount, checking the manifest. So it was a good four or five hours before they realized that there was an extra person on this plane, and they turned the plane around and came back to L.A.
0: And lucky enough that there was an empty seat, right? Because obviously, if they were sitting in a seat that was already taken, I'm assuming that this problem would have been brought to everyone's attention a lot sooner, certainly before they took off.
4: Right. If the person was hiding in the bathroom that you would assume that would have been caught much faster. So, yes, he must have been sitting in an empty seat. Uh, We don't know the details on that yet, but that certainly makes sense. It's also uh, interesting that they even caught it at that point.
2: Well, Juliet, as someone that knows all the ins and outs of the points and getting elite status, is there anything that you can point to that you can offer people? Uh, that are looking for these kinds of special statuses to enhance and and make better the travel experience? What should they be doing?
4: Well, elite status, especially on airlines, but hotels as well, isn't quite what it used to be. If you're not going to travel regularly, then often the cost of getting that status is not worth the perks because a lot of them have been scaled down as the economy has been strong over the last two years and airlines have found their seats uh, easier to sell and easier to fill. But if you are traveling, on a regular basis, then at least that can be helpful. And your best bet, if possible, is to try and focus your travel on one airline. A lot of people, unfortunately, have to spread their travel out across two or three different airlines, and that makes it more difficult. So what's
2: the best airline to have all this status on? (laughs)
4: It depends on where you're flying in and out of. If you're a hub captive, as they call, as we call it, meaning if you're, say, live in Dallas, then you're probably going to want status on American since that's one of their hubs. So it really depends on where you're flying from and where you're flying to on a regular basis.
0: If you're somewhere, though, like in the New York metro area, like Pim and myself, we're just wondering, is there like a certain airline? <laughs>
4: well, if you uh, were going to go in and out of Newark on a regular uh, basis, then United would probably be your choice since that's one of their main hubs. But we're actually fairly lucky here in New York in that the major three airlines, Delta, United and American, all have quite a bit of service out of the New York area since it's such a large market, both domestic and international. So you have a bit of a choice here in in this uh, neck of the woods.
0: Hey, I got to ask you too, though, has consolidation been Good or bad for consumers? I'm someone who does fly in and out of Newark an awful lot, and I've got to say that I've had you know some ups and downs uh, among you know United and Continental coming together. I know it was a massive consolidation there, but uh, what have you seen uh, as we get kind of fewer and fewer major carriers? Yeah, the
4: bad news is that consolidation definitely doesn't favor the consumer. Competition favors the consumers, so fewer airlines is not good for passengers. The good news, though, is that the low-cost carriers like Spirit, Frontier, Allegiant have stepped into that breach. And even though people don't necessarily love flying low-cost carriers, they are helping to keep the prices down so that airfares are not spiraling up out of control as they might be otherwise if there were only three or four major players.
2: Julian, have you ever tracked how far it takes to walk to the actual gate of your aircraft when you enter the terminal?
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just flying last week to Los Angeles, and I was uh, walking with my 82 year old mother from uh, security all the way to gate 33 in JFK Airport. And uh, I- I'll tell you, she—I was ex- as exhausted as she was when we
0: got. You there. didn't get a ride? That's when you hail one of those little uh, golf carts. You know.
4: The- in all fairness, several employees asked us if we wanted oh, to ride, but okay. Mom wanted to walk it. So,
0: what, what's some of the innovation that you're seeing uh, among travel?
4: Uh, we, you know, the airlines and the hotels are always very interested in, in uh, new technologies. They're trying to always stay a little bit ahead of the curve. Airline IT isn't always the best. Uh, hotels are a little more advanced when it comes to that. As far as looking at when you're coming to a hotel, you can check in on your phone now. You can ask for services via an app. So that's the sort of ways that uh, travel companies are enhancing, uh, using technology to enhance their experiences.
2: Uh, Julian, uh, talk about enhancing the experience uh, in a hotel or even in an airport. What about enhancing the experience uh, on an aircraft? Are we going to see smaller aircraft, maybe hundred fifty passenger seat aircraft, and that's going to change the, uh, the sort of the regional, Nature of travel.
4: Well, we're definitely going to see not just uh, not just smaller aircraft, but more to the point, smaller seats. Uh, The airlines are going out of their way to pack as many passengers as they can into these cabins. Obviously, the more people they can fly in a flight, then the more money they can make per passenger, or the more money they can make overall because they're making more money for each passenger. Are you
0: serious? How much smaller can they get? (laughs) No, seriously. You know, American (sighs) just
4: had to reverse themselves a few months ago because they were going to go to what's called a 29-inch pitch, which is the distance between each seat uh, back, and they had enough outcry from their customers that they uh, put it back out to 31 inches, but it's, uh, we're we're, getting to the, uh, we're pushing the envelope as far as we can here.
2: What about uh, this new long, uh, long-range non-stop flight in March? Qantas is set to begin non-stop, seventeen-hour flight from London to Perth, Australia. They're using wow. a seven-eight-seven Dreamliner. Uh, are we seeing more flights of
4: greater duration? We are. In fact, that flight is replacing a flight from Dubai to Auckland, which is currently the longest flight, and it will be replaced in 2019 by New York to Singapore from Singapore Airlines. So we are seeing more of these long-haul, nonstop flights. As long as there's a call for it from businesses who want their people to be get from A to B as quickly as possible, we're going to see more of those uh, here.
0: Hey Julian, just quickly, fifteen seconds for Charlie Pellet, who loves to take cruises. Got any advice for him? Hey, you know, my girlfriend and I went on a
4: Disney cruise a couple of years ago, and even without kids, it's a lot of fun. I definitely recommend it. Don't
0: you love the frames that, as you move around, they like change and adapt? <laughs> it's pretty cool
4: stuff. It's Disney magic at its best. Yeah.
2: Disney Magic on the High Seas. Well done. Thanks very much. Julian Keel. He is the senior analyst for The Point Sky, giving us a little look into travel uh, in 2018.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.